HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Karen Carbon Partners, a food business consultancy that helps clients explore the interconnections among agriculture, food, policy, and people. For more information, visit kknp.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. Joining me in the studio today as co-host is our show intern, Austin Bernarski. Happy to be here as oh, always. We're happy to have you. <laughs> on today's episode, we will be talking about millennials. Love them or hate them, one thing is clear. They're here to stay. Millennials, or those of us born between 1980 through 2000, are now the largest generation on Earth. Dun, 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 dun. And we have money to spend. Um, it is projected that by 2017, millennials will have more spending power than any other generation. So why are we talking about millennials on a food policy show? Because millennials, it turns out, are food obsessed. We buy, grow, make, discuss, photograph, post, evaluate and eat it in a way that arguably no generation has before. In fact, households under 30 spend uh, 75% more than the average household on food and 84% more on food away from home. With us here in the studio to unpack the origin and degree of this obsession, as well as what it spells for the future of the food system in America, is Eve Turo-Paul. Eve is a freelance food travel and culture writer who recently authored the book A Taste of Generation Yum. Later on the show, we'll also be speaking with Hallie Meyer, a fellow millennial and co-founder of the food startup UMI. Eve, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome intro. Thank you. (laughs) Pulled a lot of the stats from your book. Wouldn't you know? Appreciate that. Plug away. (laughs) All right. Well, I want to start by unpacking the term millennial. So Mm -hmm. who is Generation Yum that you refer to in your book? And and what are some of the dominant traits of millennialism, if you will? Yeah, 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 for sure. So, well, 
first and foremost, at the beginning of my book, I make it very clear that I'm talking about a subset of the millennial generation. So there's a major, major part of this generation that can't afford their next meal, that doesn't know where their next meal is coming from. Mm -hmm. So I could have written or could write potentially someday a book on that population. But this is really the population I'm talking about is middle to upper income millennials who are spending the vast majority of the money in this this economy um, around food. And the biggest distinction that you see between millennials and Gen Xers, Mm -hmm. which is the generation before us, is the fact that we were raised really with one foot out in and one foot out of the technological boom. So I remember going to library classes where I learned about the Dewey Decimal System. Ah, yes. Uh Uh-huh. I know it. And then (laughs) went to, like, my typing class where I played Oregon Trail and learned. I love that game. Right. You know, but so, but, you know, texting came about when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And I was the first generation and first year to meet my college peers on Facebook before in person. Mm -hmm. So we've really grown up with a lot of this technology. And um, the effect of that is starting to show within our um, behavior. Okay. And so how... Um, by the way, just for all of you guys listening, um, Austin, who is an, on the earlier side, I would yeah, say, Austin, of, the, of the generational scale. I'm 21, I think. I feel, uh, I feel uh, like we might have lost you at the Oregon Trail reference. No, no, I don't no, know. no. I always died of dysentery. Okay, okay. okay. All right. <laughs> um, okay. Well, glad to know you're, you're, um, <laughs> you're still with us. That's fantastic. Tamagotchis? Totally no. went over my head. No, you didn't have Tamagotchis. Um, okay, so, so how does this relate to food? You know, I mean, so, right. yeah, so the, the technological divide and, and food. Wait, so as you pointed out in your intro, we are the first generation ever um, to be spending our discretionary income on food. Like, if millennials really think about their parents or baby boomers, what did they spend their discretionary income on? They spent it on drugs, and they spent it on music. Mm-hmm. And food was something kind of for, like, the hoity-toity. It was like going to opera or playing golf. Young people were not concerned about what they were having for dinner. They were concerned about what show they were going to and how they were going to get high on the way there. Mm-hmm. Right. Young- a, la, a la Anthony Bourdain. <laughs> a la Anthony Bourdain. <laughs> a la all of our parents. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and today, you know, it's not necessarily the rock show that is the focus of the evening. It's where you're going to dinner. It's the chef. It's the menu. It's where that menu was created and where the local ingredients were coming from. And that is now the topic of concern and it is also the new form of social currency among our generation we're judging each other based on food choices Mm. we're proclaiming our values based on food choices and when we post those images of whatever we ate online Mm -hmm. yeah and i mean i guess the this sort of like visual um the way that we value food very visually and aesthetically i think um has been uh part and parcel with social media. Mm-hmm. And I'm sort of wondering um, how has... Um, like, I think in one part of your book, or in the end of the book, you say that um, millennials will make or break the food movement and right. sort of will spell the way forward in terms of food policy. Yeah. And I'm wondering, like, a lot of people see social media as being more superficial and maybe not necessarily... Um, yeah. Well, like hard social movement. And I'm, I'm wondering where the divide between that is. Well, so, I mean, it's a really good point. The social media and clicks, right, are the new form of consumption. Right. Yeah. So it doesn't, it, it partially matters what we're actually eating. It 
and doing and buying, but the, but clicks and shares at this point in time is are just as valuable. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, the way that we're using it is more of a performance. It's more mm-hmm. of building our own personal brand mm-hmm. by saying, I know about organic. Um, I can afford to eat at Blue Hill. Mm-hmm. I can. Um, I'm like super talented and worldly and <laughs> my daughter is eating sushi. Um, you know, whatever yeah. it is that you're yeah. saying. But there is the opportunity for this generation to start saying, um, I care about fair labor rights for farm workers. I care about the farm bill. I care that my local farmer is getting the subsidies that he or she needs in order to provide Mm -hmm. um, for my neighborhood. But that hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. Well, I think I think that we can we are starting to see like some of these kind of you know people's more political points of view coming out on social media platforms, Mm -hmm. and I think that that's there's a there's a lot of value in that. Um, I mean, some might say you're preaching to the choir because. You yeah, know, it's like it's like your friends, right? You're yeah. not you're not really um, necessarily well, connecting with people who disagree with you. But. I think that there's I think the people sometimes underestimate the power that um, is involved with the internet and the the people that follow you. I mean, if you've ever started a blog at any point in time, you pretty quickly realize that there are like some random people that end up finding you. <laughs> really? <and reading>. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like I'm the only person who um, is into food that didn't start a food blog. Well, I, yeah, I blogged when I, I used to travel a lot um, on my own, and I would blog as I went, mostly for my family, and then suddenly yeah. it would be like, there's like a community in Vietnam that's following me. And <laughs> You're like, hey guys. And I'm like, I don't know you, but this is great. Um, <laughs> but so I, I think that, that maybe young people are, you know, they're not really understanding the power that they do have huh. simply by voicing their opinion online. You might feel like you're preaching to the choir, but in reality, just putting that information out there, you don't know how, who's going to share that with their own network then yeah, that's going true. forward. That's a great point. So what would you say are some, um, I mean, I think that it seemed like psychology was like a big yeah. Yeah. You know, um, you really wanted to kind of get into the why. Yes, exactly. Um, and so can you can you tell us a little bit about your findings, like what really drives people um, towards food? Mm-hmm. And then maybe and how that plays with just kind of like general psychological observations about our generation. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I jumped into this topic from a very superficial level, which is. I wanted to understand my own behavior. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I wanted to understand the behavior of my peers and my friends who were taking pictures of their food or, you know, paying $100 for an underground dinner that, like, really wasn't so great. But they felt really satisfied after because they'd met cool people and had a neat experience. Um, and... You know, it ended up becoming far more interesting because I I ended up using food as the lens really to look at this generation from a deeper Mm -hmm. level. And it became very clear. I mean, I did four years of of interviews and Mm -hmm. digging into um, a lot of different science journals and sociology and psychology, a lot of time in the NYU library. Uh, Like the LexisNexis. Yeah. 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 JSTOR. JSTOR. Yeah. Science Direct. I do not miss that. It makes me me sad for school. I miss it. I mean, yeah, I still do it every day, so... Um, this is pretty much ongoing of my life. But but I really, you know, discovered that food is serving as the anti-technology. And we are the first generation to grow up really infused in the technological space. And, and obviously, this is also why you see these trends also resonating in Gen X and boomers, because they're also um, spending a good amount of time on their phones and in front of screens and iPads and whatnot. But the way that millennials are using food is to serve needs that are unmet by technology. And those key needs are community, mm-hmm. sensory stimulation, identity formation, and control. 
And one of the key findings really was that we are an increasingly depressed and anxious generation, mm. which is, yep. <laughs> I mean, it's an uncomfortable thing to face, but yeah. you know, one of the through lines of, of millennials really around the world is we feel a growing lack of autonomy over our own lives. And that's partially because we don't trust political institutions. It's partially because of climate change. It's partially because of recessions. Some of the things that we've lived through, like right. you wrote about in your book, kind of the major events that have caused a distrust maybe in the political system. Yeah. And, um, no, I think it's, that, that definitely resonated. So, you know, and there's, there's just very, there's distinct parts of the psychology of this generation that are satisfied and soothed by um, a variety of different interactions that all revolve around food. One thing, you know, I have to say, um, this might be like the most millennial thing, but I was, I was reading your book and I like halfway through put it down and I, I think I like turned to my husband and I was like, you know, food used to be the thing that differentiated me from people. Like I, you know, have culinary training and community gardened and have worked in food (laughs) policy for a while, but now everyone's doing it. Like it was like an existential crisis of like, I'm not special. (laughs) But you are, you are. You're here right now. That's what matters. And my husband's response is like, yeah, you're a millennial. (laughs) There's something so interesting though in what you're saying, which comes up a lot in your book too which is that our attachment to this thing that we call the food movement really has a lot to do with our need for actually exactly. a sense of identification with a movement. Right. And I guess well, one question I have for you is how can, how can you channel that power that you get, um, the power that we have mm-hmm. by posting an article, how can you actually channel the, um, the like and the crazy sense of movement around it to actually moving the needle on an issue in the world that affects maybe mostly the people who aren't talking about it. Um, And, you know, this is obviously something that, like, this is something that really kind of plagues me as a millennial, too, um, who is working in the world of food. I mean, how can you actually get better food to more people? Right. So I think you're asking, like, a key question that a lot of people aren't realizing, which is um, that millennials are currently being vocal about food issues when it relates to something that is pretty direct to them. Right, so they care about antibiotics, they care about GMOs, they care about pesticides because they're putting it in their body. They're putting it in their body, exactly. And something that's a bit less tangible than that, um, such as farm subsidies or pesticide runoff, or food access, or food access, um, or fair labor rights, um, that's not really getting a whole lot of attention. Mm -hmm. But the the recommendation that that I make and what I think is most realistic as a starting point um, is food waste, because. I do think we need to understand, like, yes, we are living in this land of branding, of performance, of a need to feel like you have a little bit more control. And food waste is a way that people can participate every single day, Mm -hmm. right? You can become aware of what you're throwing out, what you're not throwing out, what you're composting, what you're donating. Um, You can also create a really awesome recipe for like cauliflower stems or carrot tops and post that online and feel super altruistic and and feel super sustainable. Um, And I'm hoping that with food waste, because it it incorporates all so many different topics, um, it, it doesn't, it addresses in some ways food access. It addresses in some ways sustainability, um, climate change that, that will at least start, uh, educating consumers, on uh, the influence that they can have, mm-hmm. and then 
perhaps we can build on that. So in your mind, almost, almost, you know, milking the um, self yeah. kind of the need for self branding yeah. is is really the answer. I mean, and you also talk about the food movement itself not actually having one issue that right. we have yet to rally around. Exactly. Um, and I I personally thought it was pretty unfortunate when like GMOs became the thing that we started to rally yes, around I because agree. it seemed like this sort of easy thing that the food movement decided to put as its billboard issue and um, really didn't get at a lot of the important issues, which are the human systems behind right, well, the and food GM- system. Right. I mean, GMOs to me, uh, it's a key example for marketers actually at what, of yes. what not to do. Exactly. Um, and I think that Monsanto's done a massive disservice. Uh, to people by shrouding GMOs in secrecy. And, I mean, this does, it relates back to, to all my findings, which is that if we don't understand, if we, meaning millennials, do not understand something, if you're not being forthright with us, we don't want it. And right. we're not going to trust you that it's good for us. Yeah, transparency and trust, I think, are huge needs of right. this. Mm-hmm. And generation. most people, if you talk to them and say, you know, what is a GMO? And they're anti-GMO. They, they have don't no know. idea. Yeah. No idea. No. They and, also don't know all the good that GMOs exactly. have done. Right. In terms of food right. equality, yeah. right? Um, and this so, program is brought to you by Monsanto, Monsanto. <laughs> <laughs> and Hallie Meyer. <laughs> no, but it is true. It is. It's. It's an issue that I think is was kind of co opted, and for whatever reason, it gained a lot of popularity very quickly. And it was the it's one easy. that kind of. It's easy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's easy, and it's. It's. Um, and I think from an environmental standpoint, right, there's a lot to be said there, and, and it can do a lot of good for this movement, but not for the re- not for the reasons why it gained popularity. That's not but why it became popular. I think, but I think it's a really amazing sign for those in the food movement of, like, the power yes, that can be harnessed mm-hmm. around a food issue. Right. And it came about because... I don't think there were people in the food movement that were paying enough attention, that were really driving the conversation. But we've seen what can happen when cage-free becomes a topic. Oh, my when God. An, yeah. know, no antibiotics becomes a topic. Mm-hmm. When non-GMO becomes a topic. Well, also, when you engage, I think, the private sector, right? You really... Right. I think that there is a lot to be said here for, um, as you write about, like, the, the purchasing power of this generation yeah. and being able to vote with your dollars. And since this generation is very clear on, you know, we want transparency we want um, it's basically to do good in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, I think that we can harness that to, to really move the private sector in the direction that we want. Yeah, and I just I do want to like emphasize here that big food um, and even the government is going to respond to what this generation is demanding. And and Tally, to your point, like I have a fear, yeah. which is that when foodies, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. achieve what they want to achieve in terms of their own good eating, that they're going to kind of... It's going to be only them. ...give up on the... Right. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not really going to care about the rest of, of the food movement. And I um, I think that we're kind of at a really pivotal moment where it's like either we can get these people really engaged and drive this forward so that we create a, a momentum that big food can't ignore because they're going to realize that they can't make enough money mm-hmm. um, unless they respond to it. Um, but there is a responsibility of, of people in, in this food sector to make sure that that happens. Right. And I yeah. so I want to I want to talk a little bit about that, though, because how I mean, how? Right. How do you <laughs> how do you make that transition? I, I think and I want to and I do have a question kind of around the term foodie and yeah. what that means. And I want to talk about that in a minute. But like. 
I mean, isn't it isn't it a good thing, right? Doesn't it just start with people just becoming interested in who cares how they become interested in food, mm-hmm. be it through like the cronut effect, you yeah. know, or yeah, yeah. this cool restaurant? Like, it doesn't matter because ultimately, inevitably, mm-hmm. y- you're going to start to think like, how did this um, come to be on my plate, and yeah. where did the in- ingredients come from? And then, I mean, that leads to questions about food systems, mm-hmm. right? So, so isn't it going to be an inevitable? trend towards more people caring. I would love to hear your thoughts. I feel like I'm a little bit more skeptical and I think that the what you've gotten at, which is the power of uh, social media and the power of one's sense of attachment to a movement via the like um, is actually like it's usually powerful, but like it toes the line between powerful and super distracting. Um, sorry. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm eager to hear. No, I mean your I think, maybe less than I will thought. <laughs> I am a very a pessimistic person, actually. So, um, but I do, but I, I, I do have faith in this because you know, I think the power of chefs mm-hmm. is something that's really um, amazing, something new that's developed. But if you okay, for example, Roy Choi. Right, he's opened up local on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Number one, like people think that they're like Roy Choi's friend, right? Because like Roy Choi is like a super cool dude, and you, you can read his memoir, like you can get to know him, go to his restaurants, and suddenly he's like, "Hey guys, guess what? Like I care about feeding people mm-hmm. food that they can afford that's not going to give them heart disease." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's opening up people's minds. And you can say the same thing about Dan Barber mm-hmm. that. He has so many different fans, and then he did the wasted pop up, and people were like, "Oh, right, oh, food waste, food waste. Right. problem, right, right. yeah, right." And I think another right. one of another one of the indicators that you use that I think is really effective is um, the sort of proliferation of food studies programs. Yeah. Um, and I think, I, like from personal experience, like I got interested in food because Sunday or Saturday and Sunday mornings, I wasn't watching cartoons; I was watching the Food Network, which right. I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit, um, but that's what allowed me to <laughs> it's pursue you along with everyone. Else. Right, exactly. That's yeah. what allowed me as a student to pursue food studies right. in this sort of like critically engaged, right. um, sort of skeptical uh, uh, perspective that um, you know makes me want to right. do mm-hmm. work in food policy. For and the if, rest of if I really, if you start to like get down to the nitty gritty, like what separates younger millennials versus older millennials, it is that younger millennials are even more educated at a younger age about food because of the proliferation of food studies programs, of farms on campuses, of um, bringing food access in, into more of the public debate. Um, mm-hmm. Right. Which is amazing. And then yeah. if you really think about like going forward and talk about how millennials are becoming parents, there is a trend, which is that millennials say that they'll buy organic and say that they'll shop sustainably more than they actually do. Mm-hmm. Right. Because if we're all being honest with ourselves, you go to the supermarket and you see two heads of broccoli. One is generic and it's $2 and the organic is $5. You're getting the $2 broccoli, yeah. right? I mean, because we're also like very thrifty. But well, we're also kind of broke, I mean, not well, broke, but underemployed, I would yes, say. Yeah. yeah. And... Um, but the, but the real question comes in like well so but once people have kids which head of broccoli are they going to get yeah. and mm-hmm. they're far more likely to actually invest in the organic broccoli which also means a hopefully organic sales are going to continue to go up and I think you're seeing Jessica Alba tapping into this with the Honest yeah. Company oh my god is she making a killing but it's for this reason and yeah. and then you're also going to have kids that grew up eating organic 
mm-hmm. right? Whose, whose parents were emphasizing that. Right, and that was a priority in their household. Okay, we're going to um, take a quick commercial break um, and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be back in a minute with the second half of our show. Carbon Partners is a food business consultancy that helps clients explore the interconnections among agriculture, food, policy, and people. They help coordinate executives, school and government officials, distributors, and farmers think clearly about how food is produced, processed, and distributed, encouraging them to overcome challenges and pursue innovation. Their Good Food is Good Business division supports the healthy development, execution, and operations of food businesses and initiatives in the public and private sectors through strategic sourcing, feasibility analysis, market research, business planning, project management, and evaluation. Their Good People are Good Business division builds leadership and organizational effectiveness through talent and performance management, organizational assessment, executive coaching, recruiting, and employee engagement services. For more than 20 years, Karen Carpenter Partners has been integral to the development and execution of food businesses, policies, and partnerships in the U.S. and the U.K. Visit them on the web at kknp.com. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with author Eve Turo-Paul about the millennial generation's food obsession. Um, I am now going to turn to you, Hallie Meyer, and put you in, in the hot seat. As I mentioned at the in the intro, Hallie is um, a, fe- a fellow millennial, a recent Yale grad, and the co-founder of UMI, um, a home cooking marketplace. That is right. What's a home cooking marketplace? Yeah, so a marketplace, the marketplace piece of the word means Mm -hmm. that um, there's a supply and a demand. We hope there's a demand, Mm. at least. Um, So we're basically a platform where really talented culinary entrepreneurs, whether you have been cooking your whole life uh, and you're, you know, a self-considered home cook or an aspiring chef, um, culinary school grad, um anyone trying to make a name for themselves or maybe you're a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad who makes a killer cocoa vat that needs to get out there um we're selling that tonight actually from mark's <laughs> from mark's paleo kitchen hi mark um hi, mark. <laughs> so we we connect these people with um customers families really who uh for whom dinner hour is something that they want to get right but that's broken at this point um they can either order takeout or uh spend time cooking which they don't have um Mm -hmm. so and we deliver it to their door yeah yeah wonderful um how did you come up with this concept so i actually didn't come up with the concept itself my co-founder did his name is khalil um his mom is the original umi and she basically would do this so she would actually vacuum seal her home cooking her lebanese home cooking wow uh, and send it to him when he was in some pretty sketchy situations in afghanistan um so we met in new haven uh where i also met austin um khalil was a yale law student i was a yale undergrad uh and we we kind of totally hit it off did a series of trials operated for seven weeks there we got very lucky um 
with the amazing culinary community that's hiding in New Haven's home kitchens um, <laughs> and uh, learned a ton about the model and and from there we decided let's let's actually do this thing and launch it in Brooklyn. So one of the things Eve mentions um, in your book is is uh, this concept of auth- authenticity. So you know this this yeah. idea that's super highly valued and sought after and similarly natural naturalness. So I'm wondering like how Umi's business is centered on some of these themes. Yeah. So I think I think interestingly I have Do you want to talk about the word authenticity. Yeah, so I I personally don't love that word mm-hmm. because um, it's it's kind of it seems to have lost a little bit of its meaning. Authenticity. Think, yeah. Sorry. Thanks so much. Can you just Sorry. remind me what, what's the word we're talking about again? Yeah. Um, but the word itself, I think, stripped of all context, actually just means real, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. So, but I think also the word real has has been um, oh, you, contextualized. This is, this is a rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> When I when I think of uh, an authentic home cooked meal, great. It has two uh, two qualifiers now. But um, what what we're really hoping to sell with Umi is just a home cooked meal um, by your talented neighbor, no matter what type of home cooking they do, whether they choose to source their food entirely locally from their local farmers market or. Um, maybe maybe what's really authentic is their grandma's lasagna recipe that uses canned San Marzanos and um, excellent ricotta that they don't happen to hand make. Right. Um, but the idea that there is intention and love poured into a meal, I think I think that suffices as a definition of authentic for me. All right. And I. Is Umi engaging, um, like, specifically with millennials? Like, is that a target? I know nothing about the startup business, so is, yeah. pardon me if I'm not using the right lingo, but is that your, like, intended market? Um, and, like, are these the heartstrings you're pulling to specifically? Or you mentioned families are yeah, a huge part yeah. of this. And I guess m- millennials now are just the first wave uh of having of people having children are mm-hmm. now or people yeah. who are having children now are yeah. millennials. Yeah, I think interestingly um Khalil and I are both millennials, but our target audience and the people for whom we're hoping to solve problems on the demand side are our families. These are parents who are way older than us um who actually aren't on Instagram as much um, yeah. and who actually aren't really uh they're not in this uh, same conversation around food. They're in a conversation around. I want to raise a family, and I want to serve my kids good food. Yeah. And uh, Blue Apron takes too long, and I'm <laughs> I feel guilty right. putting takeout on the dinner table. So I was going to say there, there's such an opening in this marketplace because for the first time, really, you have a huge population of families where both uh, spouses are working. Right. And the work-life balance. There is no balance. Like, let's be real. And at the same time, people are also starting to understand that they don't want to be eating processed foods. They don't necessarily even trust the chicken in the Thai food, the yep. takeout, right? Um, there's a drive towards home cooking. We know that yeah, it's, right. it's better. And there's right? something about um, understanding the face and story behind that meal. Mm-hmm. Um, and also knowing that you're able to keep food spend in your community that I think is driving um, a lot of the interest in this. That you're, you know, you're saying... Where am I spending my dinner dollars? People are thinking about that, and like you know, like we talk a lot about, um, 
the millennial generation is super powerful and they are kind of influencing what what they're completely young parents and even you know yeah. older people are thinking about. So I think uh, you, you, you just used the word community and I think if yeah. I'm not misunderstood that's your that's in your title, right? Yeah. Hallie Meyer is the head of community mm. at Umi Kitchen. <laughs> um, and I think that that can also be sort of a messy term, right? Because we have these like We definitely global, haven't defined it yet. <laughs> great. We have these global businesses um, like Uber or Airbnb, the, Airbnb. Mm-hmm. These yeah. these businesses that are like bringing uh, people together, right? Supposedly, um, in this uh, category of the sharing economy, mm-hmm. um, but it seems, and maybe I'm just hopeful, but Umi is like really like linking people together in a way that maybe these businesses only claim to be doing. I I certainly hope so. Um, I think one thing that we're super conscious of all the time is that we are a we're a tech platform at the end of the day, right? And so this, you know, this is opening an app and ordering dinner, understanding the story and seeing the person's face and, you know, meeting your neighbor, but it is a digital experience. So two challenges. How can we actually capture that real mm-hmm. experience of um, you know, seeing someone who just made a meal for you give it to you and see the satisfaction in their face um, mm-hmm. that nourishing others gives them. How can we replicate that digitally? But also, how can we make sure that that's something we really actually um, foster offline as well? So, well, can you replicate that digitally? Is a question. Yeah, and <laughs> but, I think because Eve proposes that food is the anti-technology. Right, right. You're well, on the well. I mean, of- people people do use technology to facilitate connection in person Mm -hmm. right and those so there's really interesting statistics around around anxiety depression internet use um things like that people who use these social networks in order to avoid in-person communication Mm. or to compare themselves right exactly are the ones that have the highest rates of loneliness and depression but people who use the internet to facilitate in-person meetings Mm -hmm. like like people who use meetup.com or who are doing something like this where you're actually meeting other people those are the people who are deriving the greatest benefit benefits from social media Hmm. platforms. Right. And I can think of, uh, you know, very few other things that are as intimate as... A home-cooked meal. A home-cooked meal is feeding somebody, yeah. right? That's one of the reasons... That's how I express love. Yep. <laughs> my, Same. In my household. So I think that that... Um, well, and in so many ways, we're just, like, moving backwards in a certain sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Of, like, right, this is what everyone did, right? Like, you fed your neighbors. Yep. Mm-hmm. There's really no reinvention of the wheel here. Right. <laughs> I mean, well, but, but there has, this is happening. But there has been a total breakdown of social capital. Let's go back. Come on, my recent undergrads. Social Capital, Huntington, ringing any, be- any, uh, any bells. Uh, bowling Alone. Bowling Alone. Yeah. I mean, I think that, like... English you're... major. I was busy with Shakespeare. So oh, God. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Who? Oh, I'm just kidding. It's terrible. Um, okay. <laughs> um, but I, I, it is kind of... It is bringing people together, and, and that's something that you talk about also. Kind of food is a sense of community. And, and what I think is interesting is you see that sort of manifest in a lot of different ways, be it through these the bike club experience where you mm-hmm. come together with strangers or um, meetup, you know, dot com mm-hmm. or, or cooking for your neighbor who you don't maybe necessarily know. Mm-hmm. And and gluten free singles I've seen is oh now a God. dating site. No, is it really? I, I oh my God. I can't tell if it's a joke <laughs> or not, but it exists as a URL. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's I great. can't say I've ever signed up <laughs> because I am vehemently okay. pro gluten. gluten the, the only tolerant. reason that that does make sense is because people are not just using what they are eating, but also what they're not eating yeah. as yep. a sign of their value system. Hmm. So vegans Critical. feel like they have a certain value system that they're putting out there, mm-hmm. and perhaps people who are gluten free feel like they have a similar value system associated with that. So you want to meet some. It's like a religion. And I was just at Superiority Burger for lunch. I'm so going amazing. tomorrow. Night. Let's take apart the name of that institution. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it captures a lot of the anxieties <laughs> that you know someone who wants to brag about their vegetarianism has. Yes. Yeah, it's a good burger though. It's, yeah. it's still, it's oh my amazing. gosh, you guys have to try the Philly cheesesteak. It might be. I'm, go- I'm literally going tomorrow night, so it's. I'll text you. Millennials okay. in action. Yeah, yeah exactly. here we go. I'll text <laughs> this is today. actually just a social experiment that we're putting on today. <laughs> to plug superiority burger <laughs> and Monsanto and Monsanto. All right, well, well, we're gonna have to wrap up soon. But um, Hallie, where can we find? Uh, how can a we home cooked meal? Where can we find a home cooked meal these days? Yeah, so we'll be launching our app um, in about three weeks from now, oh. um, and you'll be able to download it. But for now, just go to www.umi.kitchen. We got pretty lucky with that wow. URL. Yeah, and we're running a series of um, small trials where we're delivering meals twice a week um, to Greenpoint. Not to Greenpoint yet. We'll be in. <gasps> oh. We'll be in uh, Gowanus. We'll be in Gowanus, Borum Hill, Carroll Gardens, Cobble Hill, Clinton Hill, Park Slope, and kind of the Prospect Heightsy area. Mm. Oh, Kim you cover Kessler a lot of, a lot of will basics. need to know. Yeah. Yes. Our Our awesome. Co-host and producer and beloved inventor of eating matters. Beloved inventor. I yes. can't wait for some of our awesome culinary entrepreneurs to feed her. <laughs> Um, and Eve, where can we find Generation Yum? So you can get Generation Yum. It's in print at McNally Jackson in Soho. Um, it's also available basically at any e-retailer for books. You can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Google, all of those great places. All of the above. Totally worth the read. Yep. Oh, thanks, Yeah, Wonderful. It was great. Okay, guys, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. To our guests, Eve Turopal and Hallie Meyer. Our show is produced by my brilliant co-host, Kim Kessler, and myself and our wonderful intern and co-host today is the one and only Austin Brynjarski. <laughs> Yay, Austin! <laughs> I'm entitled to applause. You are as a validation. Great job, Austin. Austin, let's go get ice cream. Let's go. Um, but before I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this up here. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you to our sponsors and our show engineer David Tedes. Ted Ashore. The show is available on Heritage Radio Network or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. Please find us on Twitter. I'm Jenna Liud, and thank you for listening. for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.